Hello again, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here for another week of talk with Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on? Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I hope you're well. I am well done, as opposed to rare. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the way I like to eat people. Wait, I mean, um, <laughs> that's the way you like but your tofu. segue into a, this is Van Richten Ravenloft week. So, I mean, I think everything is spooky and uh, people are vampiring and things like that. That's right. As of this recording, I will be able to access my D&D Beyond file of such book tomorrow, uh, but two days after uh, the show comes out. So we'll have something yeah. to talk about uh, next week. But before we uh, talk about that, we need to put Tasha's to, to pasture. We need to put the book to rest. Yeah. And we have one more thing to talk about. So we'll talk about the feats, the spells, and the magic items on today's show. Yeah. But first, let's talk news. And the big news, of course, is what we just mentioned, that Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft releases on Tuesday this week, which was three days ago or two days ago. And I can't wait to, lo I can't wait yeah. to read it. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, um, we know we get the reimagined domains of dread. And as I mentioned in the past, you know, I've been listening to, to the Dragon Talk podcast, which has had some really good reviews with Wes Snyder talking about the logic they applied to each of the domains as they took a look at it and said, you know, hey, this is just like another domain, not different enough, or the, the theme isn't clear, or it's antiquated. And they seem to have had, you know, a really good mental approach to why they were making revisions to old 2E material. Mm -hmm. And what remains to be seen is when people really look at it, you know, does that work, right? And that'll be fascinating to see. They're always going to be angry fans. <laughs> That's well, yeah. I never worry about that. Like I don't care. Right. They're always angry fans. That's fine. That's just going to be. Why'd you change my favorite thing? Uh, but what what matters the most, I think, to D and D and to the overall community is whether new players, um, you know, and really anybody looking at this says, "This is neat. I want to do stuff with this." Yeah, and it's been a while since we've had a new setting. Because this is really a new setting, right? We we had we had Tasha's, which was all rules. We had uh, Icewind Dale, which was a new part of a setting, but it was still Forgotten Realms, and there was still a lot, you know, a lot of canon baggage there that has come from before. So it's been so long since yeah. we've seen something really new, like a new setting, a new sort of flavor to dive into. Uh, that that that's what I'm most excited about. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm really interested in seeing how it comes. It was such a sprawling amount of material. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, any, if anyone wants to sort of momentarily be shocked and have their jaw hit the floor, go out and look at just how much was published for second edition Ravenloft. Yeah. You will not believe how many adventures, source books, box sets were released. It's unbelievable. Um, and I will, I will say a lot of the material was not my favorite <laughs> yeah <laughs> i own a lot of it and it's oof. yeah i i paused playing maybe midway through second edition uh because of you know life mm -hmm. life life got in the way and one of the things i wanted to do was still collect a few things but i wasn't going to buy everything because they were producing so much so many settings yeah. and so so many books so many novels and so I was like, well, I'll, I'll take Ravenloft because I love the, uh, you know, the original 
uh, adventure, AD&D adventure. So here we go. And I start, you know, I bought a couple of products and I realized how many there were and I went, well, so, so much for that. And, that was and a bad choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, the first few things that came out, I enjoyed, but yeah. You know, and then I was like, I can't keep up. I can't keep yeah, the up quantity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you name a type of undead, they started making a source book for it, and it was just, it was kind of endless material. And yeah, 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 that was one of those things. That was the game we played in second edition. Is it, unless you were wealthy beyond belief and had all the time in the world, you had to choose. You know, do you do Planescape or Ravenloft? Do you do Spelljammer or Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk? Or yeah, and and you just. You know, I don't know anyone who could do all of it. You just had to choose mm-hmm. and funnel down. And, and, and once you were in, you, you felt committed. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I never did Planescape. And I was always looking at Planescape, you know, sideways, kind of like, well, oh, I wonder if I should have chosen that. Oh, right. God. Right. I should have done that. Oh, well. Uh, well, you mentioned Dragon oh, Talk. Uh, it is, there is a possibility that we will be hearing you on the next Dragon Talk, if it drops as we assume it will. So what did you talk about on Dragon Talk? Yeah, it was really fun. So Shelly has, uh, Shelly Mazenoble, co-host along with Greg Tito, Shelly has a segment called How to Be a DM, which sometimes has the subtitle, Will Shelly Ever Be a DM? Uh, Which makes it kind of fun because she comes at it from a very like, I don't know how to DM, tell me how. And uh, there have been some really cool guests on on the show, so I, it was really neat to get to be on. Um, and what what I did, what I had proposed to her, is that we go through creative, uh, collaborative campaign creation. Mm-hmm. And so this is where, instead of the usual thing where a DM, you know, you sit down and you spend hours wor- working out your world, you know, oh, it's a chain of islands and there's pirates and whatever, and and then you just start playing with the players and the players slowly learn about your world. But the reality is that usually they don't remember a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And so what we did on this podcast is I gave her a six step process that I use for working with your players to actually create that campaign. Mm -hmm. And the process can also be used with a published campaign. So you can do things like if you think about when we talked about rhyme of the frost maiden, Mm -hmm. um, how you would take that book and say, Hey, everybody, I'm going to run rhyme. But here are the 10 towns. Let's collaboratively decide which ones we like. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's come up with some cool details about them that colors it to what we want out of the game. Let's come up with some themes that we want to see happen. And so it's a whole six-step process that takes you through how to either take your own setting or publish setting and make it your own. And the point of it is that what I found when you do this mm-hmm. is it's a drastic improvement in player engagement because they have a personal stake in it. They, and they look forward to seeing the things they came up with. And yet you still have plenty of latitude to add secrets and stuff like that. And what we did on the show is after going through the process, Shelly and I uh, made a fantasy version of Seattle that had clockwork elements. Oh, nice. So we went through the process and applied it to fantasy clockwork Seattle. And there was some great stuff. I, I think you know we were both a little nervous of like, will, will this work well, you know, kind of being recorded live like that. But, but it was super fun. We really had a great time. And, and at the end of it, I said, you know, I'll, I'll write this up. I'll write the guide up and I'll write up, you know, what, what we came up with mm-hmm. and, uh, and make it available to anyone who joins my mailing list on alphastream.org. So yeah. when, whenever the show goes live, you'll, you can do that. You join the mailing list and you'll get this guide for free. Sweet. Uh, I'll also have it drive through if people want to just buy it outright. But, but it was a lot of fun. It was, yeah, it went really well. I think the show is going to be a, a neat one to listen to. Awesome. So when the show drops, take a look and see if it's there. 
And uh, if so, sign up for, <laughs> for uh, Teos's mailing list and get get the goods. The goods are also what the Adventures League are looking for in a new community manager. They're having an open call for someone to come join their team and serve as an advocate for the DDAL community, as well as an official voice of the DDAL team. Uh, this position will focus on social media management and influencer relations. Working closely with the uh, senior DDAL community manager, responsible for engagement strategy, content planning, and rules feedback. So if you have been wanting to sort of take that first step into the RPG uh, community and the RPG industry, this is a good first step. And you don't even have to be a rules mm -hmm. expert guru. You can be a uh, just a friendly, friendly person. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times the uh, community manager position has been someone who, you know, they were not, uh, they had not written an adventure before. They didn't have decades of organized play experience or anything like that, and yet made great contributions. So, yeah. Yeah. There's precedent there for being relatively new to it. Yep. And this is a freelance contracted position with Wizards of the Coast, uh, which would expire on December 31st, 2021 with the possible of possibility of renewal in 2022 pay is $2,000 per quarter with an additional $500 stipend for professional development. So you know, as a former adventures league administrator, it's a great experience, uh, lots of fun, a great team to work with. You get to, uh, you know, work with not only the other Adventures League administrators, but also Wizards of the Coast uh, employees you'll sometimes interact with. And, you know, it's a good way to contribute to the hobby uh, if, if you love this hobby that we, we all seem to enjoy. Yeah. Um, it looks like they'll also do the usual thing where you get the major books sent to you as part of it. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's not bad. You know, I think they say the expectation is eight hours a week. Uh, we'll, we'll see <laughs> that the person, you know, whoever it is out there, when you get this job, you let us know whether that works out. Cause I think that's the hardest part of, of being an ale admin is that time's never what it seems like, but maybe this is different, you know, who knows? Yeah. I refuse to comment on the grounds. I may incriminate myself. Uh, I, I know I have not been an ale admin and I know lots of ale admins. So I'm glad to say that I'll, again, I'll stick by what I have said. Um, <laughs> But what, one of the things that I thought was super interesting about this role, you know, it has things like, okay, you maintain the Twitter account and you have a posting schedule and you monitor the Discord channels and all that sort of stuff. And you have some say, you suggest improvements and all that kind of thing. Um, blog posts on Yawning Portal. But then it also says, create initiatives for influencers to use DDAL adventures in streams and podcasts. And I'm glad to see that because that has been a thing that, you know, lots of streams are running one shots or sort of short campaigns. Mm -hmm. And AL is actually really great for that, right? It gives you the a lot of great structure upon which you could either do a one shot or do a sequence of adventures and stream them. Mm -hmm. And that would work for everybody. They get a free adventure and you get to have adventures league promoted so i'm glad to see that there is that emphasis i think that's great and it'd be neat to see more streams and podcasts that are running al right yeah. i think it'd also be an aid for dms who run al because they could 
get a preview that way, right? You, you yeah. listen to someone play or watch someone play the adventure, then you run it. That's way easier. Yeah. It's, I know that Roll20 did something like that with Defiance and Flan. And I couldn't, I can't watch other people play my stuff. Uh, I just, I couldn't really? do it. Yeah, it's just too, <laughs> too, too nervous. Uh, so I, I don't know how it went, but, it, you know, they obviously at, at least did it to, you know, since it was Roll20, you know, I assume they were doing it to show how you could use their tools uh, and so on. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, you know, welcome to the 21st century of, of RPGs and D&D, right? We, we need to get uh, our our celebrities playing so we can uh, market and it's totally fine. It's, it's, it's the reality. And, you know, if you can get someone, yeah. someone I mean, to play your game, good luck, do it. It, it is though. Th there's this fine line between like, like, uh, you know, new BDM gets the books sent to him. Right. Mm -hmm. he, which is awesome. He gets the, he gets the books for free. D and D sends him stuff, and he'll do these Twitter walkthroughs that are immensely popular. Mm -hmm. And he goes in detail. I think the way he does it gets people super excited about this, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have some folks that literally go, "Hey, thanks, Wizards, for sending me this book." Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think to myself, "Is that really worth sending the book to that person?" <laughs> like, here's yeah. a screenshot of me holding this. Done. Like. Is that really influence? Maybe it is. I don't know. You know, you at home, the listener can tell me whether just seeing a random person hold a book up is that. Because for me, I, I, if I were wizards, I'd want more new BDMs holding up not just my book, but it's getting me excited about it. Right yeah. when when newbie talks about because he's got the you know the the Van Richten's guide when he's been going through that, I get excited about it. And I think, man, that was that was really smart to send Enrique. Mm -hmm that book right that's awesome uh, but i don't know about the just here it is on my shelf you know yeah and, and especially sometimes they'll even say things they'll be like thanks WizKids, for sending me minis i don't use minis but you know these are pretty <laughs> really? kids if I'll you <laughs> if you send teos your minis you will get some in-depth reviews and all sorts yeah, of stuff I, I promise so <laughs> next is something that you added to the news about how to prepare larger adventures. Yeah. Uh, Mike Shea mentioned this because uh, Luna, also known as Lubafin, uh, on her YouTube channel, talks about how to prepare a large D&D adventure and cites uh, Mike Shea's excellent books and adventures as part of it. But the main emphasis of it in this YouTube series, this YouTube uh, video, is how to run a big adventure like Curse of Strahd or Tomb of Annihilation, acknowledging that this can be quite overwhelming and, and, and having a process is helpful. Um, and I love her first advice, which is she says, if you're a brand new DM, I don't know that you should start with a big book like this. And, and that's a really good read, right? Which is that if you're, unfortunately, and, and, and I think we've talked about this a lot, it's a shame that the big books are not easy to run, but mm -hmm. often the beginning of these books are actually quite hard to juggle, right? You end up with a bunch of NPCs or strange situations, and for whatever reason, they are not easy to run. And there is a lot of information. So her first advice is great. Start with something smaller to get the feel for 5e, then move on to one of these hardback books. Mm -hmm. And she also talks about the importance of choosing a theme you like. 
Like she said, you know, hey, I'm running Tomb of Annihilation. I didn't realize it had the level of carnage it did. And I'm actually not the kind of DM, nor are my players the kind of people who want to see PCs really die. Mm-hmm. So we have to change that up. And if I'd really thought about it, I probably should have chosen a different venture. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, is great. I love that earnest, yeah. you know, approach. Yeah. Um, so yeah, looking at that theme and, and really think, and, and, you know, like go out on Reddit and see, like, if people are measuring their kill counts, maybe, and, and you don't <laughs> like the PCs, you know, choose a different one. Yeah. Um, and I love Tomb, but that, that is a thing that is hard about it. You have to be kind of okay with that mm-hmm. uh, or make the changes. And then she goes through a process of review, like skim the book first. Don't worry about the details. Just kind of quickly get a feel for it. And I like this technique. Write out your summary of the story you just skimmed. And she says, what this does, is it helps you identify gaps or logic issues that you haven't comprehended. So if you're writing out Tomb of Annihilation, ah, they're going to go here, they're going to do this, da, da, and you're like, well, I don't know how to get from here to here. Mm-hmm. Now you know you need to go back and figure that out. And it may not be your fault for not understanding. Maybe that the adventure is a bit obtuse in that regard. And so you go back and work through it, and now you've got that high level. And, and, and that, I think that's great. If you can say it out loud, you know, what's supposed to happen in this adventure, then you're, you've got a real good vision for it. Yeah. Um, other insights are to make a list of key NPCs and villains and their motivations. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And after you've done this, go back and reread the first chapter and actually prepare to run that. And she points out that usually the first chapter is quite lengthy, so you can now just be running the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can go and sort of progressively reread other pieces. Um, and lots of good advice, like skipping parts you don't want to run. Um, and yeah, so it's a good video. I highly recommend it. Link is in our show notes awesome good job luna and so yeah that is on youtube also on youtube is jeff talks rpgs that's jeff stevens show that is on uh, jenny love day's youtube channel and the most recent episode talked about industry pay rates where jeff assembled luminaries such as anthony joyce mike shea ryan service and some guy named teos to discuss this issue of industry pay rates. And this is the discussion that is pretty much uh, continuous, or at least it comes up, it seems, every six months or so. (laughs) And it's funny because, you know, people who I follow on Twitter, who I agree with explicitly, don't even agree with each other on this, or at least come at it from different angles. And I did not see this episode, but... Uh, since you were involved, I assume you are the Teos that was involved. Uh, so what I am the, te- I'm, it's that Teos. <laughs> yes, it's that Teos. <laughs> I am said Teos. Well, uh, so it actually records, uh, it has not recorded yet. It's oh, about to record. Gotcha. So it'll be out by the time that, uh, yeah, it'll be out by the time that everybody, uh, listens to this. Um, awesome. Cause we are recording, uh, today. All right. So you <laughs> so can't watch it live as, yes. as we know it. Not, well, you will to, well you you did watch it live you may have watched it live <laughs> or did you? but you did not know it from us <laughs> that you could watch it live right all right exactly. so i i may have to something like that i may have to if if i am but not yeah. uh what t- what time is that do you know what time it um, records yeah i do it is i think at five pacific eight o'clock eastern okay that would be right in the middle yeah. of my AMA on Twitter. So maybe I will. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it if I can. But yeah. Yep. So any highlights about what yeah, you're going to discuss? 
I think the the interesting part here, there's starting to be this discussion, and and this, as you said, this is an ongoing thing, and it iterates, I think, in sort of how it exactly, or you know, it sort of changes a bit in sort of how it comes up each time. And I think one of the questions right now is, should there be a real minimum based on, say, word count? Mm -hmm. You know, should there be a, a real floor that we don't go below this? And what does that mean for different size RPG companies? Um, and should everybody be paid the same, which is another question that comes up. And so I think that's some of the interesting discussion there, right? I, I think it's not just about recognizing that it's not a livable wage in most cases, but sort of w what can it be? And, and, and w that's where I think this could be an interesting discussion. I'm looking forward to be a part of it. All right. Well, if you liked uh, Teos's lead in there, then you definitely should watch the entire talk with uh, Jeff, Anthony, Mike, Ryan, and Teos. That will be available on Ginny Loveday's YouTube mm -hmm. channel on the show Jeff Talks RPGs. And uh, so, Mike, we will talk about Sly Flourish even more in his article, Demogorgon Must Die, where Mike walks through the uh, creation process for a level 1 to 20 campaign based on the premise that one of Demogorgon's heads... Plans to kill the other, which would result in chaos across the plains and a terrible new demon prince. Uh, so you can go and you can see how Mike breaks it down by tier, uh, you know, teaching us all how to create an epic campaign, starting with, you know, your, your local uh, iteration of, of problems, then uh, ratcheting up the drama and the tension until you get into those epic tiers. Yeah. Mike has done this before. I always like his blog posts that, that show how to make a level one to 20 campaign. I think it's highly educational to see someone else break that down. It's cool. Yeah. Another blog that we follow is DM David, and he has a new one uh, talking about when you describe outcomes, you should flatter your game's heroes and monsters. You want to talk about this one? Sure, it's a pretty nice short and sweet blog post that reminds us that D&D is a game in our heads and it's all about the enjoyment we have. So because of that, let's savor these great moments like critical hits or clever ideas. And he gives a number of examples of sort of fun things a player might come up with. And in those moments, we should highlight the heroic or villainous moment and make sure to showcase what took place. You know, slow the action down. You can go into slow-mo or just stop and, and detail it and, and really highlight it. Um, and one of the things I love is he talks about fumbles when we roll a one. Mm -hmm. The tendency is for a DM to say, you know, oh, you, you know, dropped your sword or you made some sort of mistake. Uh, something that's kind of comedic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you're being made fun of. And, and that instead, don't do that because that makes the player feel like their character's bad. Instead, make it about how how actually heroic they are facing against this powerful combatant. So if you roll a one, it's because the foe, you know, just easily reads you and blocks you, right? Like the foe's that good. Mm -hmm. Or the situation is very challenging, right? The the environment is, uh, I think he talks about, you know, there's ash clouds that you know, are getting in your eyes. It, it's just, this is a hard situation you're facing. And focus on sort of that heroic, amazing moment rather than making it about how you just, you know, yeah. you stubbed your toe or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's and cool. I and, like it. Yeah. And, and that's a great point, even mechanically, because 
figuring probability, you're going to roll a one, one in 20 times, 5% of the time. And one of the problems I've always had with these like fumble tables is the, the math doesn't work out well. And if you have these huge negative things happening, oh, you cut your own arm off. Uh, you know, if you, if, <laughs> yeah. if that happens 5% of the time, you're going to have, you know, a, you know, a, a decapitated party after about third level. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. you know, don't, you don't have to treat ones with the same sort of uh, monumentous uh, mechanical outcomes that you do a crit, which is, you know, extra damage or, or, you know, wh- whatever bonuses that you're going to give for, right. for things that, that happen on a, on a critical hit. Uh, so I love this idea of narratively using that to not be uh, mechanically detrimental or story-wise mocking, but, you know, play it up for the dramatic effect that it could have outside of those, those things. And and like, I was watching um, the movie uh, hero. No, not hero. Uh, What's the, no, no, I can't think of the name. It's a, a an Asian movie with Jet Li and where they're trying to kill the emperor and the sort of two iterations of this. But but in it, there there are these things where one of the characters will make like the you know they'll close their eyes and block a blow, mm-hmm. right? And there's no great way to represent that in D anD D, but a one can actually be how you are, you know the monster can just the villain can literally close their eyes and block it, right? Mm-hmm. Like they just they just do this amazing thing, and that can be your one instead of yeah. you drop your sword or. You know, get it stuck in a barrel, and and so yeah, I really enjoyed that 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 idea. I'm gonna have to use that more. Mm-hmm. So thanks, David. Yes, thank you, and uh, thanks, listeners, for letting us walk you through the news this week. And now we are going to finish our Tasha's Cauldron of Everything review by looking at feats, spells, and magic items. We're gonna close out the book by reviewing the options that particularly caught our eye, and I think we're also going to. Uh, sum everything up by talking about Tasha's the the book as a whole and its place in the game coming out at this point uh, in the, in the game's history and yeah. the, the game's flow, the, the offerings that have been put out so far and where Tasha's sort of fits in, but let's delve a little deep first and talk about some of the feats that, that we saw. The first feat that we're going to talk about is chef. And this one caught my eye as well. Uh, First, Mm -hmm. because in my experience running games at conventions, if I run seven tables of an adventure with new players coming uh, at each table, at least two of those tables are going to have someone making a big deal out of their proficiency with cook's utensils. It Uh it always happens. And it's fun. Because I always ask, well, okay, what you, you know, well, we're doing character introductions and someone will be, and I'm proficient in cook stools and I cook up. So I'm like, okay, what's your favorite recipe? And some of them have their, their answer ready. And sometimes, you know, they, they have to make it up on the spot, but you know, it's always, oh, here's your inspiration for, you know, be, being cool. So people are dialed in for some reason to this. Uh, when I, when I had my Can I- doing backgrounds, they made backgrounds. And at least two of them made the chef background. 
<laughs> so there you go, right? Perfect. That's yeah. So what were you gonna say? Can I? Yeah. Well, this reminds me. You're, you're, what you're saying reminds me of in, in during the Dark Sun Ashes of Athos campaign. There was this this group of two players who were halflings, and they would start off these kind of character introductions by saying that they they sold jerky. And they'd let everybody sample the jerky, and, and this would be a sort of fun role-playing thing. And then the first time they killed a monster, they'd start skinning it. <laughs> yeah. So you know <laughs> what the jerky halflings, of course. was made of. Yeah. So you know what the jerky... And it, and, and it didn't matter you know, if it was a, a guard that had been killed, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. It's, it's jerky time, and they'd start seasoning it and all this. And it was just this role-playing thing, and they played a lot of these adventures. You'd see them from table to table, and just the jaws dropping when they... when. The players who had not realized what was going on saw what was going on. <laughs> that was my favorite chefs right there. Yep. So chef as a feat, here are the mechanical benefits. You get a plus one to your constitution or your wisdom, proficiency in cook's utensils. And when you take a short rest, you can cook a special food, provided you have the ingredients, and you can prepare enough of this food for a number of creatures equal to four times your plus your proficiency bonus. So at least six starting at first level. Well, there's your whole party usually. Yep. Um, at the end of the short rest, any creature who eats the food and spends one or more hit dice to recover hit points regains an extra 1d8 hit points. The second, or at this point, fourth benefit <laughs> is that yeah. if you spend an hour working or when you finish a long rest, you can cook a number of treats equal to your proficiency bonus. These treats last eight hours after being made. And if a creature uses a bonus action to eat one of the treats, it can gain temporary hit points equal to your proficiency bonus. Whew. So the first thing that I'm thinking is that's four things with this one feat. That, that, <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. You're almost this. This should be a background, right? This should be something else entirely. <laughs> something because yeah. if you have a feat like this, and you also have a feat that's one line that gives you, you know, you can speak to uh, to extra languages. You, you're you're already making these things unbalanced with each other, uh, relegating yeah. some feats to just uselessness, and then this feat to grand it's almost like a subclass at this point i mean it's like half your party is going to be chefs when you when you when it's this good right and the thing is 5e you sort of when you start looking at feats you realize that 5e it sort of has some inflexibility in its design right like like a feat if it provides a benefit to an ability then shouldn't be that strong mm-hmm because or it should be it should be something that you use periodically um you know it does something like like oh you get a plus one to ability score and you can read lips and you know you can imitate someone's voice right. okay mm -hmm. uh but if you want really strong benefits then it shouldn't give you an ability bonus because people are looking for that ability bonus it's a big right. big thing because otherwise yeah anyway so this is just too much ability bonus plus the ability to regain extra hit points when you rest plus temporary hit points yeah yeah it's a lot it, it just escalates things and and the thing is it's not like this is hard to compare we've got you know the bard has song of rest mm -hmm. so we're, we're also intruding on another class yep or we're stacking with it because mm -hmm. if you are a bard now you're like 
cooking and singing or inspiring or whatever. And, and that's, yeah. you know, your players are constantly recovering more hit points than you'd expect. And then you got a defeat inspiring leader, which already is just a single thing mm -hmm. where all the inspiring leader feat does is grant level plus charisma temporary hit points after 10 minutes of being inspired. You know, like, mm, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm not sure here. Go ahead. It says, it says you can spend an hour of work or when you finish a long rest, you can cook a number of treats. It doesn't say you can't spend three hours of work to get three times the treats. True. And you know, they, they, so they only, maybe you could have a ton of these. <laughs> exactly. And they only give you a uh, temporary hit points equal to your proficiency bonus. So, you know, at that first level plus two, not, mm -hmm. not groundbreaking, but with everything else, it's just, it's too much. And people wouldn't say, well, it's only two temporary hit points. Then why even bother do it, doing it right? It's, it's. I love, as you said, jokingly, punningly, I love the flavor of this. You know, I, I like yeah. the fact that you are the chef and, and you can do this. And it does give you something, but it's just, it's too much of, it's almost like they're trying to sell this. It's like, we really want you to use this. So if we give you this one more thing, will you take it? If we give you this one more thing, will you take it? Uh, just... <laughs> Too, too much trying to to sell this feat. I feel. Yeah. yeah. Anything else on the chef? Yeah. Should we move yeah. on? Yeah, let's move on. I mean, I think just the, as you said, people already enjoy being a chef. And so I didn't think it needed to be sold to that extent. <laughs> right. The next feat is uh, really one of three similar feats. Uh, crusher, piercer, and slasher. Uh, and Donner and Blitzen and Comet and Cupid. Wait, no. <laughs> uh, so no. these three feats all give you bonuses based on the type of weapon damage that you do. So for Crusher, you increase your strength or constitution by one. Uh, for Piercer, it's strength or dexterity. And for Slasher, it's strength and dexterity. Um, so for Crusher, once per turn, when you hit a creature with an attack that deals bludgeoning damage, you can move it five feet to an unoccupied space, provided the target is no more than one size larger than you. And if you score a critical hit that deals bludgeoning damage to a creature, attack rolls against that creature are made with advantage until the start of your next turn, i.e. you're sort of dazing uh, the creature so everyone else gets, a, uh, gets an advantage to hit it. All right. Uh, piercer, sort of similar thing. When you uh, hit a creature and do uh, piercing damage, you can reroll one of the attacks damage dice, and you must use the new roll. So sort of the brutal effect. And when you score a critical mm -hmm. hit that deals piercing damage, you can roll one additional damage die uh, when determining the extra piercing damage that it takes. The old, uh, you know, 3E pick does more damage on yeah, a critical exactly. hit. exactly. And uh, Slasher, uh, once per turn when you hit a creature with an attack that deals slashing damage, you can reduce the speed of the target by 10 feet until the start of your next turn, your hamstringing. And when you score a critical hit that deals slashing damage, you grievously wound it until the start of your next turn. It has disadvantage on all attack rolls. 
All right, so there's three separate feats based on the weapon that you want to use. Teos, take it away. <laughs> I think you can just picture a boss fight where three characters have each of these three. <laughs> you just yeah. <laughs> you load this onto everybody has advantage against it. It's you know gets critical for a whole bunch of damage, and then it's a disadvantage. I don't. I mean, the thing is. It, I just don't know that the game needs this. It's um, it's the kind of thing that is generally going to be taken... Like, if, if you're a character that's not focus, focusing on damage, you're not taking this. The person who's taking it is already doing a brutal amount of damage to everything around them, probably, and then throws this on top as just extra, you know, stuff. That now crits have these extra bonuses. Yep. Um, and then this sort of effect that happens. And I just don't know that we super need this. I, I, I also don't find it, it, it's a little bit interesting, you know, like moving a creature around five feet can be a little bit interesting. Slowing can be a little interesting, but it's constant. And I don't know, I don't super love it. I didn't super love it when these were in the, uh, you know, in, in the playtest version way back then, yeah. but, but here they are. And it's just, I mean, it's the kind. Of, it's also these feel like like the feat you must take, right? If you are making a damage dealer, you have to take one of these three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's just the end of it, right? One of the problems of D and D is that it's increasingly becoming two different kinds of games. It's becoming a storytelling game, and it's becoming a tactical, a more tactical game. And the problem with that is if you get a type of player who wants to be the storytelling game player and the type of player who wants to be the tactical game player at the same table, you're trying to teach them at the same time, it, it becomes an, a, a near impossible task. And at, the more feats you add like this, the further you get away from it being the storytelling game, you know, and, and it becomes yeah. the tactical game. And with new players, you always have that problem that in theory, the game should be perfectly playable with a player's handbook and 5e designers have talked a lot about how that's their intent. But when you look at feats like this or Chef, you just know that that player is going to show up and, and hear from other players that are experienced, like, why didn't you use this thing? You know, oh, I don't, I don't have that book. You know, yeah. I, one of my friends, their first D&D game ever during fourth edition, they met one of my other friends who said, why aren't you using a crag hammer? What's, why would you use that weapon? And right. what is a crag hammer? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not in my book. Oh well, you know you've got a. Yeah. You're you're not you know you're making a bad choice. Oh, I didn't know. You know. Yep. Fortunately, they became fast friends rather than being enemies. But still, that's what ends right. up happening as you get more of this added. Yep. Must haves. They're not flavorful equals. They they become like it's like a tax. You must take this and. I, I, one of the folks on Twitter, uh, Jason Dragons, pointed out that th this kind of approach might have been really great if it existed for one of the weak weapons, if it bolstered weak weapons no one chooses. Mm -hmm. Because th there are already some weapons that are really quite obvious and everybody tends to use the same weapons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what if instead they bolstered the weak choices? Then that could have been more interesting, right, to, to, to see a greater variety. Because you just, you see endless parade of great swords and, and, you know, the same for the mall. And, the, and it's just, it would be nice to have that wide variety. And the other thing is in the feats like this also force the player to be 
channeled and focused. Like if you're a slasher, you're just using that one blade mm -hmm. and yeah. you're never going to, you know, it doesn't matter what magic item the party finds, you're sticking to this because that's your, mm -hmm. all your feats are based on that. And there is a, t a place for that, but, but it shouldn't be the default to the game. Right? I think realistically it's the default for 5e. You choose a weapon and you always wield that weapon. Like mm -hmm. that is your type. And it tends to be the same old weapons. And so the, the game then becomes kind of boring where everybody, you know, unless there's a reason why you can't do two weapon fighting, you're carrying, you know, a great sword. And it's just, yeah, or a great axe. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, another feat is the Eldritch Adept, one of several feats that uh, lets you sort of dip into another class. Uh, Eldritch Adept is for the Warlock. And <laughs> as Teo's notes in our... In our uh, show notes, it's going to be popular because you can get devil sight to see in the, even in magical darkness, and we all know uh, how wonderful yeah. that that can be. So, you know, any thoughts on this sort of um, this run of feats that let you just take a little bit from a certain class? I didn't super love them even in the base game. You know, the idea of sort of being, uh, you know, I've, I've got a little bit of a dash of cleric, a dash of wizard. Um, and this is sort of the same thing, you know, I've got a little bit of artificer in me, uh, you know, can we just let people be what they are? I, I don't know if you really want a multi-class multi-class. I don't super love the concept anyway, but th the reality is what it does encourage you to do is to dip in and grab some powerful thing like devil's sight. You know, what ends up being is a feat that gives you a little bit more than the ability to see in, in any kind of darkness, even magical, which is a big deal. And eh, I don't know, we need it. But maybe I'm being, you know, I'm, of course, and I should say this because someone listening is going to think, of course, this can be fun. Mm -hmm. Like it can be, right? There, right? there are a lot of ways. All these feats can be awesome and, and balanced. You can you can play it totally fine and, and there's no wrong way to play D&D. But it's more that what we're looking at is, is the, you know, the effect it has across all the tables, the cumulative number of tables, mm -hmm. the organized play, the streams, you know, all of that. What does D and D want to be, but where where does it and does it go towards what we all want D and D to be, or does it go in some other direction? And I think these feats tend to push you in a more crunchy direction, uh, and and it seems to be a, a power increase overall. And it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. We also have two touched feats, uh, Fae touched and Shadow touched, uh, which sort of give you uh, some. Some extra abilities uh, based on whether you're talking about the Feywild or the Shadowfell. And so with Fey Touched, you uh, get an increase to your intelligence, wisdom, or charisma by one. You learn the Misty Step spell and another first level spell, or and one first level spell of your choice. Those m spells must be from the Divination or Enchantment School. And then you can cast each of those spells without expending a spell slot. And you can then also use them by expending a spell slot uh, if you're a spellcaster. I'm running out of breath. I, I like these a bit more. I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, th these I think are a little bit better in that there are a number of, if you're trying to get a plus one to an ability score, that there are fewer choices for these types of ability scores. Um, and, and I think... They're generally a fun idea. Okay, I can Misty Step because I'm Fey Touched, or I can do Invisibility because I'm Shadow Touched, plus one other spell from a particular school. You know, I, I think this is reasonably 
flavorful. It can very easily be about the flavor and not about some optimization. It's generally not going to break the world to have misty step or invisibility, but it adds that kind of neat flavor. And you can certainly see how this works into building a character or a particular type. So I like that. Yep. And Shadow Touched is similar, except you learn invisibility rather than uh, Misty Step as well as one other spell. Uh, there is a feat called Gunner, which is all about firearms. So you get a plus one to your dex, proficiency with firearms. Uh, you can ignore the loading property of firearms, and you have no disadvantage when within five feet of an enemy. This all relies on, of course, that you use the firearms rules from the Dungeon Master's Guide. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Mastika confirmed. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Our next campaign setting. It must well, be. I, yeah. Or, or Spelljammer Gift Brigade. Uh, Tales of the GIF. Spelljammer uh, Adventure confirmed. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. I just thought it was really interesting to see a feat based solely on firearms. Did they do this just for Matt Mercer? I'm not sure. But... Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's fun. It's a neat, you know, if you find yourself with firearms in your game, then this covers some of the deficiencies of them. Yep. And the last one I wanted to talk about was telekinetic. So what this feat allows you to do is cast Mage Hand, or if you already can cast it, you can extend the range of it and make the hand invisible. Uh, as a bonus action, you can try to telekinetically shove one creature you can see within 30 feet of you. Uh, if you do so against a target that is not willing, it must make a strength saving throw or be pushed five feet away from you or pulled five feet toward you. And then a creature can willingly fail the save. So you can do it to allies. And I'm thinking, wow, as a bonus action, you can just sort of move people around the board, uh, pushing allies out of threatened areas, uh, that's really strong. That's really strong. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, if it's yeah. just against bad guys, that's huh. still pretty strong. Uh, and you know, strength being what it is, uh, for me, strength is, is sort of the, the dump stat of 5e. Uh, because the only thing that really it... Encumbrance would be important, but a lot of people don't use encumbrance rules. So unless you do melee weapon attacks that count on strength, even fighters use it as a dump stat uh, in a lot of times. So the, you know you're you're you can really whip a uh, weak enemy around the board uh, if you need to. Yeah, and if you are a tactical map using plastic pushing player, this is this is hefty. That is hefty. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, I, I kind of dismissed the telekinetic and tele telepathic feats just because of the oh, what is psionics and 5e thing. But you're yeah. right. That is that is pretty strong. Yep. Hmm. So we've talked about feats. Let's quickly look at spells and uh, give, give our thoughts on some of them. A lot of them uh, were spells that have been around for a while from previous books. Um, there are a couple of new ones that we wanted to mention. Is there any one that stood out to you, Teos, that you wanted to mention right away? I mean, so one thing is we get a couple of these uh, psionic spells that are 
you know, this 5e psionic is magic, maybe, um, kind of thing. We get Mind Sliver, which sorcerers, warlocks, and wizards can get as a cantrip, and it deals 1d6 psychic if they fail their int save, and they also subtract a d4 from the next saving throw they make. Kind of interesting. Um, then there are a bunch of, so there are 16 non-cantrip spells, I think it is, mm -hmm. and nine of them are summons yep uh which tells you the emphasis here <laughs> there's not quite a summon at every level but really close to it and a lot of them at fourth level yeah and and the all these spells let me back up one thing that's really cool i, I love this i don't know why we didn't this before is there is a table in the book of all the new spells that lists the level the name the school mm -hmm. whether it has concentration whether it's a ritual and the class mm -hmm. And it's a really nice way to see the new content. Yep. I like that table a lot. Yeah, that was useful. Um, and the um, so these these summoning spells, you know, different classes get them. I think maybe everybody except an artificer that's a caster gets gets a summon spell. And what they are is a new type of spell that changes away from what Five E had done, which Five E had been, hey you summon a creature of a type, go look at the monster manual and page through all the options and choose one. And this resulted in a lot of people doing things like turning into T-Rexes or summoning pixies that can do all kinds of shenanigans. Um, plus, it was a whole slew of monsters, so it would like fill up a room and bog down play and require lots of attack rolls. Mm -hmm. And because creatures have hefty hit points, when you use actual creatures and put them onto the map, it's like impossible to slay these. And if you've been a DM and had someone who summons constantly, it's, it's like an impossible thing to deal with. It's so powerful because it just, you can never, your, your, your force, whatever your monsters are, cannot get through all of these summoned creatures. So this new approach is a single thing is being summoned and the hit points are lower. And what's neat about the design, and I, and I do like the design, in fact, it makes me want to make a character that just casts these spells to see how it works, to test it out. I might have to do that to, to see how good or bad this is. Um, but each spell has three flavors to it. So, for example, level two, druids and rangers have summon beast. This is the first of these summoning spells. And when you cast it, you choose whether you want it to be land, air, or water. Then you have a stat block that's right there in the spell. And it varies depending on the type and whether you upcast it. So your hit points are 20 hit points if, it's, if you choose air, 30 if you choose land or water. And then if you upcast it, that might get increased. And your AC is 11 plus, say, the level of the spell. And if you chose air, it has flyby, where it doesn't provoke when it attacks and moves past. If it's water and land, it gets pack tactics. And then you get a certain number of attacks, which can scale up when you upcast it, and it does damage, like the damage for this is D8 plus 4 plus the level of the spell you used. So it would be 6, D8 plus 6 normally. I think it still bogs down play, but it's not too bad. Like 20 hit points is actually a thing that can be killed, uh, so it's 30. And the higher level ones tend to not have vastly different hit points. So, yeah, I'm really curious to see how this plays out. Yeah. Um, and if you have played with a lot of these summoning spells, let me know because I'm curious how this all works. Yeah, it, it is definitely better than the alternative, which is flip through the book and find the exact right monster from whatever sources. Oh, I have all 27 books that have monsters in them. Let me find or mm -hmm. you know get onto my uh, 
my online tool that has all the monsters in it and let me find the exact right one. This makes things go faster. I just don't think, I don't think yeah. D&D in any of its editions has ever quite figured out how powerful summoning really is. And you, you said it, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if you're playing, you know, with four people at the table and you scale things a certain way and a fifth player shows up and you haven't changed the, the scale, it's so much easier with that fifth player. And a sixth player, I think, is even more uh, indicative of how much adding someone to the, to the good guys, uh, <laughs> you know, fixes, fixes it in their favor. And summoning is the same way, I think. But. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, but, but yeah, it is. I mean, it is interesting design space. And I appreciate, you know, whoever did this design, which probably you know, several people, um, they, there are some neat pieces. There, there's some nice tactics in these summoning spells mm-hmm. where, you know, not only do you choose the type, but the types will have different types of um the, the types will have different approaches and so therefore different tactical applications. So a player that wants to be quite tactical can, can get some of that. Um, like some shadow spawn at third level has a feature called weight of sorrow. Any creature that other than you, it starts at turn within five feet, has its speed reduced by 20 feet. And then they might have a, something else that feeds off of that. So you sort of get to play around with that. And with this one in particular, I had to wonder, what happens if you have, say, Spirit Shroud, which is another third-level spell and that can slow people? Like, There are actually a lot of ways you could reduce the speed of creatures to zero in Tasha's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we saw the was a Piercer slash, Slasher, I think, could slow down your feet, the speed by 10 feet. So someone with Slasher can always reduce speed. Mm-hmm. Then you could have summoned this Despair version of a Shadow Spawn. Yep. And it would slow them by 30 feet total. Right. Which and, a lot of monsters will then move, not be moving. And right. That, so there's some real interesting things you can do. And then you knock them prone. If you knock something prone <laughs> and it has no speed, it cannot stand up. Can't get up. And so, therefore, uh, you always have yeah. advantage and it's always a disadvantage. And, right. So, you know, it, that makes its own problems. Uh, but, yeah, it's uh, – it is – they they did a great job of giving choice here. You know, instead of going through the whole book, yeah. you, you get three choices. So you there is you know flexibility that the that the spell uh, provides the player. And if you're casting these spells, you're probably a tactical player who wants to choose the right thing for the the right tool for the right job uh, yeah. at the right time. So that th- that's good. Another spell I want to I talk about. Say oh. all these summon spells. Before you do that, just all these spells last one hour, mm-hmm. which is worth keeping in mind. So you can, in the right setting, you know, get them through several rounds, several combats if you're, like, in a dungeon environment. It's yep. worth noting. Yep. Uh, for uh, a first-level spell I wanted to talk about was Tasha's Caustic Brew, which a mm-hmm. stream of acid shoots out from the caster. And Teos wonders if it's vomit. Um, <laughs> it's 30 feet long and 5 feet wide. <laughs> Each creature must make a deck save or be covered in acid for one minute or until it uses an action to clean itself off. If it doesn't clean itself off, it takes 2d4 damage at the start of each turn for that minute that the spell lasts. And it's a concentration spell. So I am not a huge fan. At first I thought, okay. And then I'm like, wait a second. So you could get multiple, at least two, and usually multiple foes. Mm Mm-hmm. 
which will be taking these 2d4 damage with a first level spell. And if you don't want them to take that damage, you have to use as a DM, use your action to, to stop it. And then of course you can't attack. And how long, how many attacks does a character, a, a DM get with their monsters, especially at low levels, maybe two or three rounds at most. Uh, if you're you know, doing a combat yeah. with like four or five monsters, uh, that's that's rough. This is powerful. Yeah, another first level yeah, spell yeah. is so powerful. Another spell is Tasha's Mind Whip, which is a second level spell. You have a ninety foot range. The uh, monster that you're attacking or the creature you're attacking needs to make an intelligent saving throw or take three d six psychic damage, and they can't take reactions until the end of the next turn. In addition, if it's affected, it can only move take an action or take a bonus action. You have to choose one of those things. And you know, what, when I'm reading these spells, what I think to myself is, and when I create spells myself, what I say to myself is, if I'm creating this spell, how would I feel if, a, if I was a player and this spell was used against me every round? Would I be happy about that? Would it absolutely make me pull whatever hair I have remaining out of my head. If that's the case, I don't want to make this spell because as a DM, mm -hmm. you want DMs to be able to have fun. And most DMs will happily roll along getting their monsters absolutely creamed because that's, that's what the game is, right? You're telling a fun story and you're letting the players do their thing on your monsters. But every once in a while, you just like... To, to have fun as the DM, too, and do something. It doesn't even have to be tremendously. If you are taking actions away from your DM every round, it becomes less fun for the DM to play the game. So Absolutely. And both of these spells say that to me. I have to make a choice as the DM. Do I Am I going to take another 2d4 damage for this creature that only has 10 hit points? Uh Am I going to give up the action they could take to not take this damage? Or in this case, am I going to have to make a choice between moving bonus action and a regular action? Uh, it's just more on my plate as the DM. Just one less tool. They're taking tools away from the DM with these things. And, and, and I get, you know, the action denial, the debuffing yeah. sort of thing is, is part of the game. But I want to see less of that, not more, uh, in yeah. the game. Because it, it's heavier than you think it is. It, it is yeah. more impactful. And Tasha's Mind Whip is sort of like a stronger version of Crown of Madness, which right. is also second level. Mm -hmm. But Crown of Madness is all of nothing, right? You either charm them. If they succeed, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Now, you do charm, charm them, and then they, they'll repetitively uh, get to save against it at the end of their turns. This version is... You're going to get a bunch of damage and everything you described, or half the damage. So it's not an all or nothing, which makes it right there stronger uh, across multiple castings. It only lasts the one round, but it is an impactful, mm -hmm. very impactful thing. And as you said, if, if it gets cast a couple rounds in a row, that can really be a pain. And yeah, yep. it's a little strong. It, it is. Uh... Were there any other spells that you wanted to specifically call out before we talk about the magic items? Um, 
The the dream of the blue veil well, yes. is funny. So level seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Enrique Bertrand uh, talked about this one too. So, Dream of the Blue Veil, I, I think, is a, a wake up call. It's the kind of thing that when people read, they're, they're going to just go, What? So, it takes 10 minutes to cast. And what it does is it gives you a six hour dream where you and up to eight willing people who are unconscious as part of the spell um, experience visions of another world on the material plane. And this gets into a weird 5e thing where 5e decided that all of the, what we used to call alternate prime material planes, which are sort of, you think of your campaign settings, O-Earth, Forgotten Realms, Toral, Kryn, Ebron. So you can have a dream about one of these. When the six hour dream ends, assuming nobody woke up, you see a mysterious blue curtain and you pull it back and you suddenly appear on that world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> already it's bizarre but then we get these controls ifs buts things to it right you must have a magic item that originated on that world mm-hmm. and you must of course know that the world exists so you don't need to know its name mm-hmm. and if so you appear in a safe place within one mile of where the magic item was created mm-hmm. this is so weird or one of the subjects um, of the spell and then there's a birth mu- must yeah. be from that place and if you go there, you end up in a safe space one mile away from where this creature was born. Right. Now, I may be wrong, but can't you just sort so of weird. cast teleport and go to these other worlds? <laughs> That's the other thing is that from what Jeremy Crawford says, teleport works across the primes or whatever you want to call them. So you can already just teleport. I mean, teleport also requires you to, or you get a chance to, I, yeah, I don't know. This is a really bizarre spell. Yeah. Uh, it's like a mass teleport with this, I, you know, this is almost like a lore thing, yeah. right? Like, here's how we explain right. some group of adventurers going between Oerth and Toral that are NPCs in novels or something. That's, I don't know. That's exactly what really I was going to say. Like, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's almost like this was in like a comic <laughs> book or a movie or a novel. And they're like, well, since it happened, we need to make up a spell that showed why this happened. <sighs> and so it's, it is, uh, it's bizarre. I mean, Hey, you know, lots of flavor there, right? It's, it's, it's interesting. Just as the DM, yeah. you, you just, you're like, uh, okay, you t- chose to take that spell, I guess, sure. Uh, where are is every magic item yeah. in my uh, in my campaign from? I guess I will have to figure <laughs> that out. Did any of the NPCs yeah, start and, and in a different uh, were born on a different plane? Okay. Uh, yeah. Can you go to Barovia and back? I mean, many... <laughs> you know. I'm trying to think. Oh, wow. There's a question. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, well, no, cause that's not, is that the material plane? It's not. Yeah. It's not the material okay. Plane. Well, that's good then. So it's the weirdest, like, I'm trying to think what campaign, I know there are a couple of published adventures that do this. And I think literally is a joke, but I'm trying to think of like a campaign I've played where for some reason we said, Oh, this magic item was made, you know, right. on a different world. Why would that even exist? It's such a strange... This spell is bizarre. Yeah, it is. I think this is most bizarre spell of all 5e. So weird. Yep. And uh, so the final... Uh, it's worth oh. noting that... Go ahead. 
I was going to say that the Blade of Disaster at ninth level yeah. is just worth noting for the carnage that it can inflict. Um, you summon a weird planar rift as a blade that sort of is like a spiritual weapon you can kind of direct around up to 60 feet away from you. And it can attack for 412 force damage, but if it crits, which is on an 18 to 20, you get 8d12 force damage extra for a total of 12d12. So this spell alone is going to try to single-handedly increase the number of d12s rolled in D&D. I think that's the entire purpose of it. And it will work because you get uh, two attacks <laughs> per round with it, so an 18 to 20. And uh, as a bonus action, you can also move you know, the blade around and take two. This is a bonus action to move the blade around and take two attacks. Yeah, bonus action. So... So there's that. Right. Uh, it is a blade of, of disaster. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's as a ninth level spell, mm-hmm. anything goes. Right. So sure, why not? Right. So Tasty. magic items, I just want to note, since we're, we're running uh, out of time here, that they have magic mm-hmm. tattoos, uh, which are interesting in the f- sense that the needles are really the magical thing. So when you poke yourself with a needle and attune to that, the needle turns into ink and creates something on your skin. It could be scarification. It could be ink. It could be anything that you can imagine that would be on your skin. When you finish, if you end your attunement, the tattoo vanishes and the needle reappears so it can be reused, which I thought was interesting um, that, they, that they're going to allow that uh, needle to be reused. Don't right. reuse needles out there, uh, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a whole different thing. Uh, so and, and tattoos aren't so easy to remove. But you yeah, know. right. <laughs> it's usually a poor, poor life decision that's involved with that. But it's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, so you know, several, 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 several different types of of magic items. And I, this is where I wanted to get into the point uh, of where this book sort of fits into the life cycle of fifth edition. Uh, Mm-hmm. If I read any one of these spells or feats or magic items individually, I just happened to come across it in my normal day and I read it, I'd be like, okay, cool. When I read all of these things, one after another after another, spending a whole afternoon doing so, it's just mm-hmm. too much. It's just, it seems like there is getting to be too much for my brain to handle. And it may be because my brain is, is uh, <laughs> degrading rapidly in my old age, but <laughs> that's not actually true. There's just so much happening. No, I hear you. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't know yeah, what, and it, and it always shoves the game in a certain direction. It doesn't just happen on its own. It, it becomes the fabric of what the addition is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the, the newest thing is where people's attention is going to be. And I just, it, it makes me not want to DM <laughs> when, when I read this. <laughs> and, and I know that it's, it's a temporary thing, right? It's just overload. But it, you know, as a storyteller, as, as a DM who is trying to run a fun game for several different groups of people of several different play styles, I, I can't comprehend all of the nuances of what all of these things are going to do to the game to the point where I, you know, normally we'd say here, okay, this is what it's going to do. This is how it's going to slow combat down or speed combat up or, you know, 
And it's just so much to try to take in that it's impossible to even judge it. Yeah, if you well, I think if you step back from Tasha's, you know, if you pull back and look at Tasha's as as its whole, and it's true in the feats and spells and magic items and all that, you see certain things really kind of rise to the fore: bonus actions, reactions. Um, these are treated more and more as the fuel that every character has access to. And it starts to feel a lot of like fourth edition's minor action or quickened in third edition where you, you feel compelled to have it. Right. Uh, and they're literally magic items that are only good if you don't already use your bonus action. And if you don't, then this is like almost a must have. And, and the game shouldn't, it, well, the beauty of 5e is that it didn't require that. Like, it, it did not require you to use your reaction, and every now and then someone might. So play was quick and elegant. Right. And you weren't constantly using your bonus action, but a couple of classes did because yeah. that was figured into sort of how they behave. Right. And now it's like every subclass is filling in these slots, every magic item. Yep. And that's a danger. That, that's a great point, and I want to say that again. Monks had to use their bonus action to take the extra attack to be equal to the other classes. If you give other classes bonus actions that strengthen them that much, then all you're doing is leaving behind those classes that did rely on the bonus action in order to be everything they could be. And yeah. that's what I didn't want to see. I wanted to be able to play a character that didn't need to use the bonus action or the reaction to be as powerful as everyone else, because I didn't want to have to thumb through the 20 different options that I could take with my bonus action. And now yeah. you're making it necessary to keep different types of players on par with each other. And there are a number of subtle things here. Like there are a number of magic items that function as spell casting focuses, foci, and you can use them without using your hand. Mm -hmm. And that alone is already a bonus that now you can be two handed or a shield or whatever is going on there. Mm -hmm. um, because normally this is a problem for spell casters. So it removes that constraint and then it adds a bunch of other things you want. And so they become sort of must haves for certain builds, mm -hmm. which is a really, a real danger in an addition's lifetime. If it starts to, what you really don't want is you don't want people feeling like to make a particular type of character, one must follow a recipe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a little bit of that. It's not terrible, but there's a little bit of that in this book too, where it feels like there's a right way to do things. And I'm glad we don't have the optimization boards like we did in fourth edition because mm -hmm. those really, as fun as they were for some players, they, they kind of hurt the edition to just have these guides that would just establish this is how you make this class. Mm -hmm. You know, there are three ways. And, and if you go down this path, this is the right way. Yep. Anything else is subpar. And, but but we're, we're dancing on that edge, right? And yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and as you said... Any one of these things is really cool. And there are a number of really cool items in here that are full of neat ideas. And, and for most campaigns, if you don't overload with magic items and you throw magic items just sort of randomly at your players, you know, with, with or, or even with conscience, you know, deliberate choose a magic item, but such that the characters are not picking and they're not building, mm -hmm. then life is okay. Right. But if you at all treat 
you know, magic items as organized play is sometimes done where players can just choose the item they need. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of problematic stuff that can happen to the game oh, yeah. that way here. Yep. So, yeah, over... Or just even that players will say, how do I get this item? I want this item. Yeah, exactly. It will complete me. Yes. <laughs> Which yes. it won't. It's a trap. Yeah, it, it is it's a trap. It's a lie. <laughs> it is definitely, yes. The uh, the spell focus is a lie. Uh, yeah, so so overall, I think, you know, individually, all of these things that we've discussed in Tasha's are cool. Uh, you know, they're, they're well-designed, well-developed. Uh, we, we had some nits to pick here and there about things, but for the most part, it was... Mm-hmm. It was, you know, a book that that we approve of overall. It's just in this sort of life cycle of a game, especially a complex machine like a role-playing game, um, what these parts, when put together, can do in a game where there are different ways to play and different player um, preferences, sometimes having to compete at the same table. And I think Xanathar's did not push us as far as Tasha's does. And if the next book of this type pushes further or even is another Tasha, I'll be I'll be more concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think we'll we'll bog the game down a bit. Yeah. You know, no more than a bit. We'll bog it down. Yeah. And and so um, so far we I do want to say one thing yeah. that's kinda neat is yeah. No, go ahead. Okay. I was gonna say, and so far since uh, Tasha's I was gonna quickly say that you go. <laughs> there are some artifacts in here that are full of flavor that's what i was going to say yeah. uh and i didn't want to forget that because you know we talked before about like teeth of delvernar or uh, there's the you know T- igwil's demonomicon uh there's some really neat artifacts in here and i like the flavor approach and the danger of what they did with some of the artifacts here there are a lot of side effects that are, are you know really interesting and, and they do some interesting lore around things like the crook of Rao mm-hmm. artifact which is famous to greyhawk fans yeah. so there's some neat stuff here um so you know no designer of the book should feel bad about the things they did there's there's some amazing design here across the entire thing it really is just that additive effect of where we are in the edition that is our is our cautionary yeah i think thing on here and then i was going to add that you know since tasha's has come out everything that we've seen released um has been more in terms of, you know, adventures or settings or, you know, things that are less concentrated in the hands of the players and less uh, chance of of breaking things and more flavor and more story. So, you know, that's, that's good. Maybe this was, this was, they felt needed at that time. And hopefully we will get more content that isn't this um, for the near future. Yep. All right. Read. Amen. So, uh, hey, we've talked a lot about this topic now. So if you have anything to add, you can talk to us. You can talk to us in lots of locations. Uh, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash MMP and donating to, uh, you know, the Teos and Sean getting new microphone funds. <laughs> or you can follow yeah. us elsewhere. So, uh, Teos, where can... Uh, people find you on social media uh on twitter i'm at alpha stream and at my blog alphastream.org i just updated our tasha's guide yesterday and i will do it a final time when this show drops so by the time you hear this i'll shortly after that i'll have it fully done so the index 
blog post that covers where you can find all the bits of Tasha's will be up. You can talk to the podcast itself on Twitter at Mastering DND. You can talk to me specifically on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and let us know what you think about what we're talking about. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, now that we're officially done with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, what are we going to do now? <laughs> I'm going to go back and cast that spell that makes me vomit in a long line. That was... <laughs> <laughs> that one was excellent. That sounded like me after a rough night at college. <laughs>